The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips, and thank you again for joining me on Psych Up Live. While their stories may not make the news, there are many people who suffer extraordinary loss, but somehow find a way to keep going and growing. You are going to hear from one of those people today. Our guest is Susan Warner, the author of a personal and riveting new book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always. She will be sharing the shocking loss of her son and husband within six months and her journey of moving forward after loss, but not moving on from love. Susan Warner is a coach and motivational speaker whose mission is to help others regain happiness and fulfillment after suffering loss. In her popular podcast, Susan is Suddenly Single, she shares her ongoing journey with an audience of growing listeners. As an independent college counselor in New York, she has had a long and successful career advising and guiding students and their families as they navigate the college application process. Now she's also helping others navigate the process of living and loving after experiencing profound loss. She holds a BS in journalism from Boston University and a master's in college counseling from UC Santa Barbara. She lives in New York City and Bridgehampton with her wonderful dog, Winston, and these days she's enthralled by the joy of her first little granddaughter. Susan Warner, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So the name of your book, Susan, is Never Say Never, Never Say Always. Translate that for us. (laughs) I guess that's the first mystery, correct? Right. I've learned in this journey, um, after suffering the profound loss of my son and my husband, that life is fluid. That one should never say, never say never, never say always. Now that is contradictory. One shouldn't say it. That I'm not never going to do something. I'm not always going to do something. I'm going to do what works in the moment, self-preservation, growth, realization, and do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And that's all about growing. And and of course, that goes without saying, without ever hurting anyone, without any cruelty, without anything that would be considered harmful. But I want to be my best me. I want to live my best life. And by doing that, I need to not say never, not say always. They're too definitive. Okay. Now, one of the things I mentioned to Susan when we started is I've done so much trauma over many, many years. And one thing Susan captures in her book is this is not chronological. This is emotionally representing the journey she took. So what you will see and what you'll hear us talk about is movement from the actual traumatic moments to efforts Susan makes as she tries to go forward, as she tries to go to a wedding and maybe just stay for the cocktail hour as she tries dating. So you're in store for hearing how the journey goes, which is not chronological, not easy, and not necessarily the one most of us want to take. (laughs) Susan, you open the book and say, what was I thinking on March 18th as I prepared to bury my magnificent husband after the loss of my son David to suicide six months earlier? Just hearing that is overwhelming. But yeah, I, I guess I didn't bury the lead, did I? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't bury the lead, but no. you you make us curious about, tell us who these men were uh, as a preface to the journey. Okay. I'm going to start with David. David um, was a suicide at 32. Um, David was a big bear of a man. He was magnanimous and charming and charismatic and kind he had more friends than anybody I ever knew. 
the stories and anecdotes about David and what he's done for people, to people, about people is never ending. I still get them today when I get pictures from his friends about, just saw this. This is when David bought me a bottle at a table when I turned 18. David was um, bigger than life, as I said, but I think what he suffered from was trying to be the best to everyone, Mm -hmm. the best nephew, the best son, the best brother, the best friend, the best fiance, the best cousin. And it was very, very burdensome for him. It was a very hard journey. David did suffer from addiction, the worst of it being gambling, along with gambling, other addictions often rear their ugly heads. And it's a very mysterious and a difficult addiction because you can't see it. No one's high. No one's glassy eyed. Um, there's no altered state of consciousness right. except for the high that gambling right. gives you. But that's yeah. not that's done in a in a um, self area. So um, I was familiar with his demons. I was familiar what he was fighting. He was engaged to be married to a lovely girl. He was four weeks from his wedding when he took his life. Mm-hmm. That was okay. David. Okay. David called me Bear. That's B-E-H-R for anybody who reads the book and thinks I spelled it wrong. I did not. Um, We had an extraordinary relationship. He was a very devoted son, very caring, very protective of me. If I was having an off day and we were on the phone, he'd say, Bear, what's the matter? Where no one else would pick up on it. Okay. So you you weren't haunted by the why. You somehow understood how this man had suffered despite his wonderful talents. Yes. Yes, I, David, and he did have wonderful talents uh, in business, in friendship, in interpersonal skills. They were extraordinary. But yes, I knew David's demons. My daughter, Elizabeth, and I had an easier time intellectualizing it than Michael, my husband, did. And he often said that he envied how we looked at it, that life was just too difficult for David. Mm-hmm. Fighting the good, bad, and the good David and the bad David on his shoulder was just too much turmoil for him. So um, was I completely shocked when it happened? 95%, but there was a 5% in me that wasn't. Okay. Um, Intellectualizing was probably to know that that it was just too hard for him. He couldn't reconcile it. He just couldn't. And then there was Michael. Michael was my knight in shining armor. I met him um, when I was 21. He was um, 24. The night I, I had, we were fixed up by a friend. We all went to dinner. And the night I came home from the date, I called my college roommate. I lost my mother when I was young as well. And I said, I met the man I'm going to marry. (laughs) And that is so not me. We had a storybook marriage of just 38 years of being Michael and Susan, one word. We were sensible and kind and loving and caring and loved our children and our family and our friends. And it was beautiful. I mean, we had some bumps in the road, don't get me wrong. But overall, it's, it was one of those aspirational marriages where the kids said, oh, their friends all said, we want to have your marriage, Susan. Mm-hmm. We want to be married to Michael. And he was just handsome and and kind and and beautifully vain and smart and probably the best retailer in the country. And, and he was kind and good and respectful to me mm. and to his children and to his family and friends. It, what was so touching and impressive is once he gets the diagnosis, Susan, the way you two travel yeah. that journey, which really was a very short journey, was eight, eight weeks, eight, eight weeks. weeks from diagnosis to death. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he, it was touching when he said he was going to meet his son. And he asked me, how would he know? <laughs> the most beautiful part of that for me was we would lay in bed together at sunset most nights, most days. Remember, it was only eight weeks. So we only had about 56 days and it wasn't long. And I would lay in the crook of his arm where I would listen to his heartbeat and smell that beautiful smell and feel the safest place in the world for me was in Mm. Michael's arms. And we would talk about everything. I feel that we talked about what we needed to talk about, our love, our children, our relationships, what life was going to bring, what his fears were. Michael was frightened to die. And, um, what we did was um, the rabbi from Central Synagogue became a real saving grace and Dr. Sean Morrison from Palliative Care at Mount Sinai, both of which um, have forwards in my book, and they helped us through the process. Mm-hmm. And Michael would ask me questions and I would ask the rabbi and I would ask Dr. Morrison and then I would translate for him because he really only trusted me at that point. Mm-hmm. And we would have these conversations every night as, as the sun would dim and they were beautiful times for me. Some mm-hmm. I, I will never, they're imprinted on me. It fits what you say with your quote, moving forward, but not moving on from love. 
this love affair has gone on and will continue to go on? Love affairs don't have to end. They can go on forever, but you can learn to love different people differently. Just because I have a love affair with my husband does not mean that I can't have a love affair with another man. I just love them differently. Um, life is different now. I'm not looking for DNA. I'm not looking to have children with anyone. Um, believe it or not, those days are gone. And um, I look for a different kind of love so that I think that I have room and I have capacity to love someone else differently and still love my husband. Mm-hmm. Very, very precious. Now, one thing that many people talk about that you mentioned after these losses is this notion of anonymity versus pain. I mean, I, I I can relate to, and I think other people can relate to, sometimes it's a relief if you're somewhere and no one knows what you've been through. Most definitely. On the, and on the other hand, you're wondering, how could the world be going on in a normal way when I have just suffered such loss? That was my yin and yang. Yeah. I could walk through the streets of New York wonderfully anonymous. And and nobody was cocking their head and no one was saying, I'm so sorry. And yet I wanted to scream sometimes, how are you all functioning? I just lost my son <laughs> right. and my husband and the world is upside down. Mm. As far as anonymity, though, I talk about taking my daughter to Paris for Father's Day right after he died. So he died March 18th, Father's Day is June. I wanted to get her out of the commercialization of social media and Father's Day. And it was day two there right? Didn't know anyone, but Elizabeth, that I looked at her and I said, I feel myself for the first time. Mm. No one's cocking their heads. No one's saying, poor you. Everyone's just looking at me for me. And I didn't have to explain anything to anyone. And that felt really good. And and I've learned (laughs) recently as well that you need to grasp onto that sometimes. So if I'm in a new group of people right now, and someone says to me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a newly published author. I have opened up the can of worms to what's your book about. I have to decide beforehand if I want to have that conversation. Because if I don't, if it's a group of people that it's inappropriate, or I'm not close to, or it's awkward, don't say it. And those are self-preservation ideas that I'm learning every day. And that's the emotional journey, not necessarily the chronological journey Mm. that Chronology would have said, I learned that a long time ago, but I had this new publication of a book and I'm very proud of it and very excited about it. So it would be normal to say, I'm a newly published author. Got to be careful. Got to make sure that this is the audience that I want to explain that to. It's hard for people to realize that when you've suffered such an extraordinary loss, that you're not one dimensional and that all the rest of you has not been lost. So when they hear the title of this book and your story, you know, they're interested, but they often don't realize you're all the other things you do, grandma and friends and dating. So it makes sense that you're cautious about this. I also don't want to be defined by those events. They are, of course, defining in my character and who I am and who I've become, I think, a better person, but I don't want to be defined by them. That would be my choice, not the poor widow. I talk about in my book that there's a word if you lose a spouse, and that's a widow or widower, but there's no language that is cruel enough to have a word about losing a child. There's no definition. There's no noun as to what losing a child is. So I don't always want to be identified by that. So that's my choice. And that's how I need to navigate the world. Now, one of the things that you say is that although you were really destroyed in some ways by the loss of these two men you love, your husband and your child, that you still held on to the belief, Susan, that life was livable. How did you manage that? People are going to wonder that. Well, we need to jump back a little bit. I lost Mm. my mom at 18. Yes. Okay. That was a very impressionable age, and I lost her to um, cancer, but um, we were ill-informed. She kept everything very quiet. So I, I claim that I grew up coping. I grew up in a small town. You coped. There was no coddling. You coped. So I come from a a DNA of women. My grandmother lost both of her daughters in their 40s to cancer. She coped. She would always say, I'm good, babe. How are you? So I don't know if it's DNA. I don't know if it's environmental, but I started my life that way. 
I knew when my mom died that I wanted to live. I never doubted that. And I think once you make that decision, then you get to make choices. And choices are exciting and exhilarating and new. And it's those choices that I think is what lets me try to grab the brass ring. Mm-hmm. I can find out choices from being with different men to traveling to different places to doing activities that were on my bucket list. They're all my choices. And if one chooses not to do that, then that's your choice. But if you choose to live life fully, then you get to make all of these new choices and new ideas that you didn't think you had. That's terrific. Um, one thing that that fits into, which I think is so important for us un- to underscore, is that pain and recovery are not incompatible. You say that in your book. People don't seem to always get this. They think if you're having a good time, she must be over it. They don't understand the next morning you could Correct. be in very deep, deep pain. Correct. You know, uh, laughter and, and tears go side by side, same day. Correct. I'm good 360 days a year, but watch out for those other five days. <laughs> when I feel the yes. pain like, like a cornered animal and howl and cry, there are triggers. And, and sometimes the triggers morph. You know, there was a restaurant I used to look at and and tears would come down my face because my husband and I would have dinner and cold winter nights there. And now I walk by and smile at those memories. It's President Biden, and I'm going to paraphrase, who made a statement repeatedly that the day that you can tell a story about someone you've lost and smile instead of cry is transformative. And that is so true. But it's okay to cry, too. Okay, we're going to take great a break. to hear the stories. Okay, we're going to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. <clears throat> we're here with Susan Warner, the author of a personal and riveting new book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always. She'll be sharing the shocking loss of her son and husband within six months. And she's giving us very important advice and personal examples of how she made this journey by moving on after loss, but not moving on from love. Stay with us. We'll be right back. America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Bright Horizons College Coach, a team of former admissions and financial aid officers, the show takes a deep dive on subjects such as choosing the best essay topic, negotiating merit aid, and navigating the common app. Listeners will learn what really goes into college acceptance decisions from the experts who used to make them. New episodes drop Thursdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get Unchained. Tune in every Wednesday for Unchained TV on the Voice America Variety Channel. Featuring nationally recognized, best-selling author, TV journalist, and the founder of the Unchained TV free streaming network, Jane Velez Mitchell. This program takes you inside a trending lifestyle that's the next wave of human evolution. It all starts on your plate. If you want to revolutionize your life, get happier, more energized, then discover the secret. Tune in to Unchained TV, Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Susan Warner. She's the author of a personal and riveting new book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always, in which she shares the shocking loss of her son and husband within six months. And Susan and I were just talking about how does one even step into the dating world when they've lost someone they've loved so much? Can you dare to try the dating apps? Do you wait for people to introduce you? Do you feel guilty? What do we think about that, Sue? So there's divorcees and there's widows. And loss is loss. So I think that we can all be lumped into the same group because you can't qualify, quantify anybody's loss. So the loss of a marriage, whether it's death or divorce, is still a loss. Um, I have found in in my very small study of people that that I have been around that men seem to jump into the dating world faster than women. I don't know if it has to do with the fact that we're still sociologically, they're the aggressor. I don't know if men, because they're not caretakers the way women usually are, if they're more comfortable doing it. I'm not sure why, but in the subset of men that I have dated, men seem to date faster, particularly widows. Which is an interesting phenomenon. I actually Mm -hmm. agree. I do think it has to be. Which is interesting. Yeah, with the need to be taken care of. Correct. Okay. So um, I had gone about a year after my husband died. Um, I was unable to attend social events. I did never understood that where people couldn't go to a wedding because they were mourning, et cetera. I understand it now. Your heart is just so heavy. The celebratory feeling. I would sometimes respond yes and then pull it back. And that's not my way. I'm a bit of a mighty mouse. So I was very surprised at myself for being unable to. And then I finally was walking down the street with my daughter one day. And she said to me, mom, you know, my therapist said that going on the dating apps is really healthy. It's like a job interview. (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, for whom? Is this for you or for me? She was single (laughs) at the time. And it was all intended for me. So I said, okay, I'm going to give this a shot. It was uh, 13 months after Michael died, but you have to help me. So she helped me with the profile and I went home and I uploaded pictures and I hit send and, and then men started texting me, the unknown, the men, strange men that I didn't know started texting me. And I learned how to function in this newfound world of dating apps and dating. And I am a big proponent of the apps. It is not how I met my relationships. I will say, because it helps you get your feet wet. There's a a safety zone there where you text on the site and then maybe you get the phone number and you text on the phone and then maybe you do a FaceTime and then maybe you meet. But there's a whole lot of flirtation and conversation and information that's exchanged that makes everything a little bit more comfortable. And you can accept and you can reject and you can unfortunately ghost, which is a a big big phenomenon, but you are there in a safety zone where it's not, you're not thrown into a bar or a place. And it's like looking for Mr. Good bar. You're much, it's a much safer environment. And I think it taught me small talk and, and new social skills and how to navigate and what to accept and not to be confrontational and measure your words and know what you say. And I dated on the apps for maybe three months. And I met some interesting people, a celebrity's husband who talked about the celebrity the whole time, (laughs) ex-husband, sundry New York men who all had all kinds of excuses for not being in relationships and how it's all they wanted, everyone looking for their soulmate. But I did meet a few interesting people, nothing that developed into anything. Um, I was set up by a good friend who believes in that. And I started my first relationship, which is in the book, Bruce, which lasted about two years. Um, that ended, we ended as very good friends. We were not meant to be much more than very good friends. And the same person set me up for the second person I was with. Mm-hmm. And that I, recently ended after two and a half years. What was so interesting, and I, I think readers would find it interesting, is you and Bruce, the first person, 
mm-hmm. really knew you weren't maybe romantically the right match, but you were such a good match as friends, you insist he meet your next partner. yes and hence the title of the chapter when worlds collide (laughs) yes what happened was bruce and i remained friendly he he's with a wonderful woman that he's very happy with and we had a lot of things in common culturally politically intellectually and i didn't want to give up that piece of me that really helped me grow and develop and gain self-confidence and he didn't either he considers me maybe his best friend yes and the man arthur who was my second relationship was very uncomfortable with that and was very threatened by it. And there was nothing to be threatened about. And I remember saying, if I wanted to step out on you, why would it have to be him? Like there are, there's a a world of men out there. Don't be threatened by him. It's not going, we're not going back together, but he was. And I thought that the way it would best be handled was for us to have a glass of wine together which was a very funny, interesting encounter, which yes. I beg you all to read about in the book. It yes. is very interesting. Well, but when you think of it, I I was thinking, this is a very convincing woman. She actually got these men to get together because <laughs> the average man, the new man is thinking, obviously, I don't, I don't fit the whole needs package for this woman because she actually wants me to meet a male friend she will not give up. It was like a Seinfeld thing. And, I guess so. But the fact that, and I do, I, I encourage readers to, to enjoy this piece, these men actually do it. I mean, you're a pretty yep. convincing lady. And it was it, very funny. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. it was, it was. I mean, we went in there slightly confident. I was nervous. Bruce was extreme, put his, checked his ego at the door and really wanted to hold on to this friendship with me. So he was willing to say everything from, you know, we're not meant to be together. We, we don't work together. He would, he would have said anything. <laughs> and um, Arthur, they were both doctors. So they had that commonality and they loved to play that game. And then I don't know, somehow it slipped to some very quick sexual conversation, which I slid under the table because I'm the commonality here. Right, right. And we all left Bruce feeling good about it. Arthur feeling good about it. And men, you know, as yeah. long as they all feel good and everybody's ego was satisfied, I was good. Now, the other worlds that collided, and I think that this, given the holidays, this is a really important example. I think you gathered all the family together in a villa, um, I think in Europe somewhere. And of course, you brought your your new boyfriend, uh, Mm -hmm. your friend, your partner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for as much as families want people to go forward, they want you to be with Michael. And somehow that had a big impact on you. You seemed all of a sudden, as you describe it, stuck. It just dark. Okay, you share it. Yeah, yeah. Um, they. It was. It's my brother and my sister in law and their children and their mates that they're with and my daughter and my son in law and Arthur and I. And I had trepidation because. My husband worked with my brother. They were best friends, partners, and brother-in-laws. My sister-in-law, Angie, and Michael, she always said it was her second husband. The children worshipped Uncle Michael, which was known as UM. And then there's my daughter, who it's her father. And David missing, of course. I'll address that in a minute. And I, Arthur and I went to Paris first before Tuscany. I thought we would establish that. And that was great. We travel very well together. It's our, it's our perfect time. And we get to Tuscany and everyone is so magnanimous and so kind and so open and so accepting. And the more that happens, the, the lower I, cl- I descend in that Michael was the glue to everyone so wonderfully kind and wonderful and funny and warm. And I, I expected to hear him yell my pet name from one end of the villa to the other. And David was just, he was the life of the party. David was always the center of the party. And my youngest niece, Evie, you know, would like flirt with him because it was her older cousin and the boys just adored him. And, and in Elizabeth, it was her big brother and they were missing. Yeah. And although the family was fine, I descended. I didn't do well. And and I was so sorry for that. Arthur didn't deserve that. And I don't think the family knew so much, but I was distant and my worlds collided. And I took for my 
five steps forward, I took two steps back. Mm. And I wasn't proud of it. And I knew it was something I needed to work on. But in fairness to you, Susan, in that different setting, in the usual family holiday setting, it's possible that you felt that loss of Michael in that dimension in a way you had not felt. Because this was a different, this was Michael in the midst of the family. And but it, we had gone on other vacations prior oh, to this. Okay. I had just not brought anyone. And they uh-huh. weren't they weren't my favorite times, I'll be honest. Okay. I mean, we did go on safari and that was phenomenal. But we had a trip right after Michael and David's death that that wasn't great. Um but the safari was great though. So to your point, maybe true. I think it was trying to introduce someone else to take up that space, to mm-hmm. breathe that air that I wasn't prepared to do. Okay. And then couple that with the loss of David, who was so much the magnanimous center. David took up all the space in a room, <laughs> all the air. He was bigger than life. So it just hit me hard. And again, unanticipated, um, four years out, didn't, didn't expect it, had to deal with it had to learn what to do, what not to do, how, to reassess how I feel about things mm. and to, to re-understand what happens when worlds collide. One of the things you say in the book, which really fits, is you say, just when you don't expect it, fear sneaks up on you. Loss and pain sneaks up on you. It doesn't mean you're not recovering, but because this journey is not one that just works consecutively. It's a it journey. is not linear. This is right. not a linear journey. Right. It really yeah. oscillates between being in the very dark pain and then moving forward with some delight. Of, but it's not People an easy People told journey. me early on that the pain never gets less. The distance between the pain gets further. Okay. And that is very, very true. Okay. There are times that are really painful. And they feel good. It feels good to hurt because as a society, we are so busy suppressing pain. We don't deal with death and grief well as a society. We keep pushing it down and saying, don't feel it. It was very interesting when Anderson Cooper and Howard Stern explained, he has such a journey in his podcast on grief and death. And he explained with the death of his brother and his father, he doesn't think he ever really dealt with it. Now, how is that possible? but it is because we are so busy suppressing it and repressing it. So when I find when it does rear its head, sometimes it hurts so good and it's so necessary. It's like the pressure of your brain is relieved that you can finally feel. And then it goes away. My feeling is, and then it's tomorrow, the sun rises and whatever that date was on the calendar or that experience that you had is over. And the sun rose as it does in the morning and it's tomorrow deep breath, smile on your face. Let's do it again. So you're saying to our listeners, when it comes, embrace it yes. as part of this journey instead of negating or denying it. Because as you said, with Anderson Cooper and, and other people, you just can't deny it because it's there. It's not carrying it. Yeah. It, it, as I said, it, it hurts so good. It's normal to repress it most of your year because you need to function as a regular human being mm-hmm. in regular society and feel the good. I've, I've felt bitter. I've tasted bitter and I've tasted sweet and I like sweet a lot better. Sweet works a lot better for me. So if I can enjoy the moment, keep my heart open, smile at people on the street, meet people, have great exchanges, that feels a lot better when I go to sleep at night. But then there's hurt and there's pain and it's who I am. It did imprint me. It has made me who I am. So I need to feel that on a periodic basis to kind of check in with Susan and check in with Susan's psyche and mental health and and her imprint to make sure that everything is in its row, everything is in its category, and that I'm still handling and dealing and growing from it. Mm -hmm. Well said. So Susan, you write one chapter. Chapter 11 is a conversation with David and Michael. Yeah. What do you think about that one? Yeah, I think it's precious. One of the things that Joanne Cacciatore says, her book is Bearing the Unbearable, is that we have and carry an enduring presence of the people we love that we lost and that we converse with them and that we talk to them. And so I I was so touched when I saw, there it is. Someone mm-hmm. just put it in living color, the conversations. What what in particular prompted you 
to write chapter 11? Well, I'm sitting in this chair at that desk and I'm looking out the window and um, finding chapter after chapter was not difficult as it, it was emotional chronology. And I felt what I felt and I had notes that I took in a composition notebook. Somehow I needed to put down the spirituality of what I feel. And I, I felt that that was a major theme in that chapter. I think people expected lollipops and rainbows and unicorns. You know, how's heaven, David? Oh, mommy, it's great. Well, that's not what it read. What it read was, if you think that souls travel in pairs, which I do, and you think daddy and I are together, which I do, then we are. And writing it gave me so much strength and so much more spiritual belief because I had to actually put down in paper and own what I think I think and believe and what I believe they believe. Okay. And it was a, that of, of the whole book was the most cathartic chapter for me because the book wasn't always cathartic. Sometimes it made me go too deep or it made me think about things I didn't want to. But that chapter was cathartic in solidifying my spirituality, talking to my men as they are now, where they are now, where I am now. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was very healing for me and hopefully healing for other people who need to do that or want to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very valuable. Very valuable. See, So the other thing that um, you talk about is how it's sort of what we're saying that every day, Susan, every chapter gives us a sense of the fear a sense of who Susan is. And at some point you say, I have to do Susan or I'm going to do Susan. Now, what does that mean? We all spend our life adjusting to societal norms. We are a wife by societal norms. We're a worker by societal norms. We're a lot of things by societal norms. But when something catastrophic happens, you get to shatter the glass. I'm going to just stop you for one moment because I want you to have the time to tell this and we're going to have to take a break. We're going to come right back to that. You're listening to Psych Up Live and we're here with Susan Warner. She's the author of a personal and really an amazing new book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always. And we're talking about the how she takes the journey of healing from the shocking loss of her son and her husband within six months. She's just about to tell us about the times when she realizes she has to do Susan. She has to hold on to herself in this journey. Stay with us. We'll be right back. America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Do you ever have an off day or is your life positive and uplifting? Making Life Brighter is a forum for positive, inspired, and contemplative thought, showcasing experts in their fields, including authors, musicians, and artists. Your host, Winifred Adams, will bring to life topics to stimulate and make your life brighter. We want to hear from you. Be sure to tune in Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. As humans, we suffer when we believe we are not good enough. We are taught we must be better, look better, try harder, and achieve more. We cope with the stress and disappointment of life in ways that make us feel worse and keep us stuck in a cycle of unworthiness. We don't have to live this way. You don't have to live this way. Kirsten and her guests will share how self-acceptance and unconditional self-love can help you break this cycle and find freedom. Listen to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans, with Kirsten Johansson, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make. Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Burrows and Burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, 
We press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burroughs and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Hi, folks. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. Um, Susan Warner is our guest. Her new book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always. And Susan and I were just talking about uh, one of her chapters is called I Do Susan. And as we were talking in the break, you know, many people are watching The Golden Bachelor and there's so many people now doing, you know, extra chapters in their life, different chapters But one of the things that is not so easy for people is to dare to consider being intimate uh, at a later age and intimate with someone other than the person you were in love with. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about that, Susan. Okay. Well, do you want me to do doing Susan first or doing... So doing Susan is about finding what works for me. Um, I am my own individual. I'm not functioning right now as a couple, which I was Michael and Susan for 38 years and loved that role. But now I need to find things that work for me. So if I think the right thing to do is to celebrate a holiday in a certain way, and yet it's destructive internally, don't do it. If I was invited to a wedding of my my son's friend who I was very close to, and I knew that the wedding, that the reception was going to be difficult for me, then respond. I want to see you married. I want to go to the cocktail hour, but I'm going to leave after that they're good with it. Mm. So I've learned to do things that work for me. Saturday nights, didn't like staying home alone. My theater is five blocks away. I'm a movie fanatic. I go to a seven or eight o'clock, see a movie, walk home, walk the dog. I'm good. It was about finding those routines and those things that made me comfortable and feel good about myself and feel good about my life. So that's Susan doing Susan. Nice. Now, Susan finding the next chapter is a whole nother experience. So what you're talking about here, I guess, is the whole dating experience post, I was widowed at 59, post 59, and the rediscovery of sexuality and dating and men or women and how that feels. And what I can say is, and I've said this from the beginning, that you can be lonely alone. You can be lonely in a marriage. You can be lonely in a relationship. But when you are your own person, you have choices. So if I want to date, then I do the proactive things to date. I get on the apps or whatever. I go out. I do what what has to be done. If I want to be alone, I close my door. If I want to go to the movies, I go. It is a lot more choice-driven than being alone in a relationship, which to me is in, must be intensely difficult. So there comes the question of guilt. You start, most people decide that they want to explore sexually what happens when they embark on a new relationship. That's a natural trend. Guilt is not something that I'm possessed with. Fortunately, I don't know if it's I waited so long. I don't know if I have no guilt over my husband's death or our life together. I have found that men in relationships have more guilt than women. Hmm. And I derive that from my own theory that it could be because men think about possibly stepping out on their wives sometime in their relationships, or they did, and they have some sort of guilt. I don't have guilt, so I don't know what that's about. I am lucky that for all the times Mm -hmm. that Michael is on my shoulder, that comes with me, I carry him forward in life. It's not in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. I have never had three people there, <laughs> and okay. that's a, I'm very fortunate for that. I have come home from dates or something going on where I think he's sitting in the chair next to my bed, and we laugh together, or I say, you could never do this, or how would you respond to this? And I giggle. I had a situation recently where I went to see him at the cemetery, and, and we laughed through a story that I told him. I have held the corners of his grave and, and danced that dance that we did so beautifully, So I do carry him with me, but not through guilt, 
not through another person in my relationship. I will caution people when they enter relationships, don't ever be jealous of someone who's not there anymore. That again, great love affairs don't have to end and people can love differently more than once. Mm. Don't be jealous of someone who's not there, particularly in a widowed situation. So they're not they're not there. But you but have as far feel, as yes, you have the feeling and the and what you're sharing the sentiment with us is that Michael would have wanted you to go forward. Michael is smiling at the fact that you're able to feel comfortable dating someone, breaking up if that's what happens. Am I hearing that right? Yes, you are. And the reason mm-hmm. I'm giggling is, is because my husband was um, sweetly jealous, possessive. And his pet name for me reflected that. Um, I don't know that Michael wants me to be with other men, but Michael wants me to be happy. And the day that I realized that somewhere in the really far far, far future, many, many years from now, I'm going to be reunited with him, makes me know that this journey is okay and that he approves of this journey because I, he would only want me to be happy. I know he's proud of my book. He's proud of my writing as is David. And I hear them saying, you know, go you, you know, I'm so proud of you. I don't think there's any, I don't feel guilt or remorse or any other negative feeling that Michael wouldn't want me to be happy. And he knows that he, he would not want me to be alone. Mm. It's, so it's I'm so, okay with that. It's such a powerful example of losing two people you truly adored and having an enduring presence of them with you. I mean, as you said before, your spirituality gives you that very strong feeling. I'll meet up with them again. But even in your daily life, there's an enduring presence of them that really um but not one that overwhelms me or overcomes what i'm doing i think it i think it's in the proper perspective that they have imprinted me you know 32 years of david almost 40 years with michael between dating and marriage how could it not i mean it was three quarters of my life so i think that what they taught me they were both such good people and i mean even to this day if something occurs that i know i should do the right thing i hear michael on my shoulder saying that name just do it (laughs) <laughs> and I do it because yeah. he said it, I should do it. And he was, he erred on the side of kindness. Mm-hmm. So it's been a positive reinforcement. And I think that I have grown and become a better person in light of their memory and what they mean to me and who they made me become. So if you were to give our audience a take-home message from the, the wisdom that you gathered from the writing of the book, from the... Uh, traumatic loss that you have faced, what is it that you would tell men and women? This is really, really cheap. But what I would say is never say never, never say always, the title of the book. Don't get stuck in never and always. That life is so fluid and you have choices. And those choices can be exciting and exhilarating and and learning and intellectual and fun and embrace them. If you choose to live, if you choose to take the right turn, then go for the gusto because you got one shot at this. And and the people that you lost will stay on your shoulder. They have imprinted you. They are a piece of you. Carry them with you in all of the things that you decide to do from relationships to experiences because they're worthy of that and you're worthy of that. Mm -hmm. Now, one question I haven't asked, but I want to put in because it happens. What do you do... When your adult kids are judging you, you're a widower, a widower, and you feel somewhat judged by them. Is a position you can take? What's the type of position you can take? They have, and this is something that is not just your adult children. It's everybody around you from friends to (laughs) brothers-in-law and brothers and sisters. They all had a relationship with this person and they're all mourning that relationship. And I have learned to respect that that it's really important that you let them feel what they feel. And sometimes it's at your risk, but they hurt too. And you're not the sole ship on that ocean and you can't corner the market on grief or recovery Mm -hmm. or pain or pleasure. Mm -hmm. And I think with children, with relatives, with friends, you need to meet them where they are and understand what their motivations are. And then put forward the best you can be because they hurt, they feel, they have their own set of dynamics of what the loss of this person was. And that always needs to be considered. You're not, you're not flying alone. 
Well, what a precious message. So tell us now how people can listen to your podcast and how they can find your book. Thank you. So the book, Never Say Never, Never Say Always, is on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. It's I'm under Susan S. Warner. I am the reader on the audiobook, which people tell me they really like. Yes. Um, hardcover, softcover, and ebook. Um, I My podcast is Susan is Suddenly Single. It's on Apple, Google, iHeart, everywhere, Audible, everywhere you would want it. If you hit the alert, you'll get every new one that comes out. And there are some interesting topics explored there. I'm taken to the wall by Lois Whitman has on that one. And it goes everything from dating to publishing of the book or fears. And, and it's a really, it's an evolution of 30 podcasts right now. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at susanwarner02 at gmail. And on my website, which is susanswarner.com, you will find a page where you can contact me and see all of my work. Perfect. Susan, I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live. Your presence has been a gift to my listeners, and your book really sends such important information out to anyone who has suffered the way you have and kept on walking and kept on loving. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Okay. I w- remember, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, and on the podcast cap app of iPhone and all the platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. It should be on those in a few hours. Remember, drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.